0: be back from vacation. Whenever I visit other churches, I'm reminded of how dear you guys are to me. There really is no replacement for all of you. I I love you deeply, and uh, it was a bummer to miss out on church with you guys. So go and grab your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 39 here, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. If this is the first time that you've used the Bible, there's a black book in the seat in front of you. You can go ahead and open that to page 1067, and the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the little numbers are the verse numbers. So when I say uh, chapter 10, verse 19, I'm looking at that little number 19 on page 1067. I'm going to be reading from verse 19 to 39. And it says this Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. For, if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. And other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners, accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to draw back and be destroyed. We want to have faith in you, to press forward and lean into you. So we pray this morning that you would give us supernatural strength by your spirit. Help us to understand your word, to cherish it, and to obey it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the previous sermons on Judges, uh, the author has taken time to explain the idea of who Christ is. That he is our great high priest seated in the heavens, giving one sacrifice once for all time. Completely covering us and forgiving us of all unrighteousness in him. And now what, what he does from verse 19 onward for the rest of the book is that he pivots towards exhortations to us. To explain to us what a Christian life looks like. What a Christian life looks like. That if Christ is seated in the heavens, if he's sat down at the right hand of, of the Father, if he has finished his, his priestly sacrifice for sins forever, then what does it look like for Christians in response of that reality to live their lives? What does a holy Christian life look like that, that's what the author of Hebrews takes time to answer for us this morning. So this is the main idea for us. Follow Jesus together. Follow Jesus together. There are three points for this sermon. Number one, commands. Number two, consequences. And number three, confidence. Confidence. So commands, consequences, confidence. Some of you prefer commands, so I'll I'll give it to you this way. Number one, keep God's commands. Number two, remember the consequences of disobedience. And number three, keep your confidence. So commands, consequences, confidence. Let's look at point number one, which is going to be the longest point in our sermon this morning, commands. Read with me from verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. past few sermons on, on Hebrews, we've talked about how Jesus entered into the heavenly temple. And presented himself as a, as a complete sacrifice. And because of Christ's work for us, we have boldness to enter into this heavenly temple. To enter into the Holy of Holies, the most intimate dwelling place of God. And how do we enter into this Holy of Holies? According to verse 19. We enter through the blood of Jesus. And and the author says that we're able to enter into this sanctuary, this, this holy place through the curtain of Christ's flesh. In the Old Testament, only the highest ranking priest could could enter in through the curtain once a year in order to make a sacrifice to obtain forgiveness of sins for the people of Israel. One time every year. That's what the entire beginning of chapter 10 was about. And if he didn't offer a sacrifice for himself in order to cleanse himself before entering into this Holy of Holies, he would be killed because he as a sinner couldn't stand before a holy God. But in Christ, we obtain entrance into this temple. And, and not just an earthly temple with a, with a fabric curtain, but a heavenly temple. And the entrance isn't a curtain made of fabric, but a curtain of flesh, of, of Christ's flesh. In other words, the, the only way you could obtain entrance into God's presence, into this heavenly temple where, where, God's, where God dwells, is through Jesus. The only way you can be accepted before a holy God is through the work that Christ has done. He's the curtain. You have to enter in through the curtain of his flesh. Through his blood. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is the good news that we believe. That that you and I, we have the same problem. That that we're sinners. And because of our sin, we're unclean. And we've been cast out of God's presence and, and been sentenced to a just punishment of eternal death in hell. But God in his kindness came to us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. He lived the perfect, holy life that we never could. And Jesus paid the full penalty of sin on the cross for all that would believe in him. And when he gave his last breath, like we read earlier in Matthew... The curtain to the earthly temple was torn completely in two from top to bottom to to signify that we have full access to God through the death of Jesus on the cross. He paid that penalty in full. That's the only way that you could be saved from your sin. It's the only way that you can gain access to a holy God is through Jesus' broken body. Broken for you. And he offers you that forgiveness today. You can turn from your sin and trust in Jesus today through the blood of Jesus. You can turn from your sin and place your trust in him. So do it. Go through the curtain of his flesh. Trust in Christ and find your rest and peace in him. All of this is possible because of what Christ has done for us. And in light of what Christ has done for us, the author of Hebrews now transitions for the rest of this book into kind of three main commands that he focuses on. Three lettuces, not to be confused with the vegetable. Three lettuces for us to obey. Let's look at the first command in verse 21. Verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. The first command, let us draw near. Let us draw near. The first sign that you understand the work of Jesus is that you go to him. And when you enter through this curtain, when you go to Christ, there's no sheepish kind of shy shimmy into his presence. No, the verse here says that you enter through this curtain. You draw near to Christ boldly. You enter in boldly. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. When, when Christ sprinkles his blood onto our hearts, it cleanses us. And and look at how the author describes that cleansing in verse twenty two, that the Christ cleanses our hearts from a clean, or from an evil conscience, our bodies washed in pure water. the The kind of cleansing that the author is talking about here is a deep clean. A, a cleansing that goes beyond, deeper than our exterior. It goes into our interior as well. That, that this cleansing from our sin is so comprehensive, so thorough that Christ's blood is able to cleanse us even from an evil conscience. Think about that. An evil conscience. That the heart in you, that, that desired sin, that enjoyed it, that rebelled against God, that hated the people around you, that sins time and time again, that heart is sprinkled completely clean through the blood of Jesus. Which means that when we draw near to God, he gives us a true heart that gives us absolute assurance of faith. And notice what the author says here. He says assurance of Faith, of faith. This isn't assurance of works. This is not assurance because I successfully got through the week without cussing out my coworkers. This isn't assurance because I actually read the books that John gives out on Sunday evening. This is assurance of faith, of trust. That that we're so confident in what Christ has done for us, in in his blood, that we can go to God today without a single ounce of doubt weighing us down. That Christ welcomes us into his presence. There's no awkward glances with God across the room to see if he's mad at us for something. You can go to him. His blood covers us. The second command here is in verse 23. Verse 23, read with me. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Not only do we draw near to God, but we continue to hold on to the confession of our hope, that the Christian faith is not just a one-time faith. A true Christian is a continuing Christian. A true Christian is a continuing Christian. And, and notice what we're supposed to hold on to. The confession of our hope. In other words, the author here wants us to remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. We're to continue to hope in Jesus because Jesus is faithful. That's harder than it sounds, right? To hold on to hope? It's easy to feel hopeless. Trials grip our souls and and drag us into the pit of misery. Sin continues its, its siren song trying to draw us away. And time continues to tick and erode at our strength and our confidence in the Lord. How do we hold on to the confession of our hope? We remember the reason for our hope. Remember the reason for our hope. Not in what we do. Not in what we bring. But in who Christ is. Look again at verse 23. Since he who promised is faithful. It doesn't say hold on since Christians will always perfectly believe all the time. He says, hold on to the confession of our hope because Jesus will always keep his promises. There's not a single promise that Jesus has given you that he will not fulfill. 2 Corinthians 1:20 says that for every one of God's promises is yes in him being Christ. Every single promise that's how you hold on to the confession of your hope. That's how you hold on when you lose one dear to you. That's how you hold on to faith when it seems like the world is collapsing around you. That's how you hold on to faith when temptation seems to be prowling, seeking to devour you. You remember Christ's faithfulness. You remember his promises. So that when temptation hits you, you can remember promises like 1 Corinthians ten thirteen that no temptation has come upon you except that which is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Or when the world wears you down, you can remember promises like Psalm 32, verses 18 through 19. But but look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. And when sorrows come, you can remember promises like Revelation 21, 4, that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. You hold on to the confession of your hope because all of these promises are yes in Jesus. All of them. He is faithful. He will continue to be. But God offers us even more grace in these promises. He also gives us each other. Let's look at the third command here in verses 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to love, provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. The main command here is the first, to watch out for one another. And this idea of watching out is more than just making sure that that so-and-so is okay. But a care for each other, a considering care, that, that you have a genuine vested interest in the brothers and sisters in Christ around you. And and what does this considerate, caring, watching out look like? Well, it looks like provoking love and good works, gathering together, and encouraging one another. Provoking love and good works, gathering together, and encouraging one another. Let's, Let's start with the most obvious one. If you want to care for other people in the church, you need to show up to church. You need to show up to church. It's really hard to provoke love and good works for those that you never see. Now, I understand the irony of preaching this in front of all of you that are currently in this room. But let me ask you, do you prioritize the gathering of the saints? Do you prioritize it? Do you physically prepare yourself to be here for the morning gathering? One pastor has said that that Sunday morning is a Saturday evening decision. It's a Saturday evening decision. Do you go to bed early enough that you're not exhausted on Sunday morning? Have you made sure that you have ample time to talk to members before, during, and after the gathering? Or are you checking your watch, knowing that every second this sermon drags on, the more it's going to intrude with your other more pressing activities of the day. See, your entrance precedes your ability to encourage. So show up. But don't just show up, do something while you're here. If you're not a member here, I want to urge you, if you're not part of a church, to join one. If you're a Christian, this is what Christ has commanded of you. And so all the other things I'm going to talk about during this kind of verse and this command are within the bounds of church membership. We want to talk to you more about what that looks like. Come to Membership Considered on on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Talk to PJ, myself, anyone else around here about what it looks like to commit to a church. We want you to do that in obedience to Jesus and, and happy to elaborate after this gathering, if you'd like. The author tells us here to provoke love and good works in each other. Provoke. To to look around at the saints in this room and to be pokey. Right? To, To prod. To provoke love and good works in one another. Now, the Lord has been really gracious to us in the last few years. Those of us who have been around for a long time remember the days when, when we would come into this room and it felt like a spiritual damp cloth was tossed on our face. Just draining. Every Sunday was a drag. I don't think we're there. I think the Lord's been kind enough to allow us a warmth that's unusual and, quite frankly, sometimes a little too cozy. Let me encourage you if you feel disconnected, one way to resolve that tension that you feel inside is to choose to be the person that provokes love and encouragement in others that you want to receive. To, to be the person that's proactive in doing that. Now, I, I remember having a conversation with a member of a church, I'm keeping it sufficiently vague here, who complained to me that the church did not do a good job of encouraging and reaching out to her. And she told me that she was so upset that she found four or five other members at the church that felt the same way and they all went to lunch together and they had a great time. Now, I'm not saying that you should go and throw yourself a pity party, but the best way to provoke love and good works in one another is not by being part of an accountability group. The best way to provoke love and good works in one another is not by committing yourself to a city group. Or, or by showing up to Wednesday night Bible studies, but by initiating, taking the first step in reaching out, initiating discipling relationships with one another. That's why we do the other things. They're there to help you get to discipling relationships. That's the whole point. And one way that you could do this well is by committing what I call premeditated encouragement premeditated encouragement, or third-degree encouragement. <laughs> See, when I pray through my membership directory each, each week, which I do, whether it's through Calvin's faithful emails, thank you, Calvin, right, or, or going through two pages of this booklet every day, I, I think about who I need to talk to, who I need to encourage in order to provoke love and good works. And, and let me encourage you to do that. It's a great thing to do that. Let the Spirit do work in you before our Sunday gathering to be as encouraging as possible in the Sunday gathering. See, the author encourages us to keep encouraging one another as we see the day approaching. As we see the day approaching, every Sunday is a Sunday closer to when you're with the Lord and when Jesus comes back. And we need each other. To look ahead to this great reward so that, so that when you're slipping, people can remind you that Jesus is worth it. This is why church membership is so important. We're not meant to walk this Christian life alone. We're supposed to look to Christ, our anchor, seated in the heavens. And as we draw near to him, And as we hold on to the confession of our hope, each church member is like a thread in a rope, braided together to strengthen one another and hold on until Jesus comes. See, we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to draw near together, hold on together, encourage one another as the day is approaching. Because the consequences of not caring for one another, not holding on, not drawing near, are deadly. It brings us to point number two, consequences. Consequences. Read with me from verse 26. Four. if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Sometimes you need a warning. The author takes time here to transition from the positive reasons to draw near, hold fast, care for others to the negative consequences of our disobedience. If we go on sinning after receiving knowledge of the truth, if we continuously, intentionally go on sinning in an unrepentant state, even if we've received the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. That any grace that you may expect to to cover your sins, completely gone. Instead, there's going to be an expectation of judgment and a fire that is going to consume the adversaries or the enemies of God. Because if you commit continuous, unrepentant sin, that's what you are. You're no friend of God. You're an enemy. And God is not stupid. He will not be mocked. He could see the hardness of our hearts, and he hates it. Let's look at why in verse 28. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God? who is regarded as profane, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Here the author of Hebrews completes the comparison between Israel in the wilderness with believers today. Not only is there a greater priesthood in a greater place with a greater promise and a greater propitiation or sacrifice, but now there's a greater punishment as well. Greater punishment. With with Moses, if anyone disobeyed the law, if two or three witnesses confirm the sin, they were killed with, quote, "No mercy. No mercy." In this case, the punishment who Je- for those who follow Jesus and then fall away is that much worse, more severe, more heavy, more wrathful. And it makes sense that the punishment would be worse because what falling away means for us is so much more vile. Let's, Let's break down what verse 29 says about falling away, how it describes it. The first phrase that you see there in verse 29 is trampling on the Son of God. Christ is precious. We heard earlier in Hebrews 1 through 4 about how he is the righteous son of God and son of David. And when we sin, we, we take this truly God and truly man person, king of kings and lord of lords, seated high above, and we trample him beneath our feet, crushing his head with our heel, crushing his body with our hard-heartedness. Second description regarding the blood of the covenant as profane. The blood of Christ is precious. It's it's the blood of Jesus that that sanctifies us, that that cleanses us, gives us that, that deep clean, without blemish before a holy God, enables us to be bold in approaching him. And when we sin, what the author is saying here is that we treat that cleansing blood like it's sewage water as profane, as dirty. Third description, insulting the spirit of grace. The spirit is precious. When we sin, we take the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity who who lives in us, who regenerated us from death to life, who bears witness to us that we are children of God, and we spit in his face. We reject the spirit who offers us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we treat him as though he's beneath us. You see, the more precious Christ is to you, the more painful sin will be. The more precious Christ is to you, the more painful sin will be. If if God is holy, majestic, infinitely gracious, and good to you, then sin will look hideous, malevolent, infinitely detestable, and disgusting. Do you see the Lord as holy? Do you fear him? If you do, then sin will be disgusting to you. What makes sin significant isn't just the badness of your actions, but who your actions are against. It's because God is beautiful that sin is so ugly, and it's tarnishing that beauty that deserves the greatest condemnation. It's right for God to turn his hand against us sinners. That's precisely why we practice church discipline at this church. It's not because we think that we're better than those that are in continuous unrepentant sin. It's because we read warnings like this in verse 26 through 31, and it terrifies us. It should jolt you when you see people headed for the pit of hell. And it's loving for us to warn them in the most serious, tangible way possible that danger is coming for them. That we don't want them to experience this kind of wrath. That's why we do it. Because we love them. Because we want to warn them against this kind of falling away. What's the point of this warning? Why does the author of Hebrews give us this terrifying reminder of the expectations of judgment for our disobedience? He gives it to us to keep our eyes ahead, to remind us of the seriousness of drawing near, holding on, and caring for each other. See, Harriet Tubman led slaves from the south to the north, and and one thing that she always kept with her side was a at her side was a pistol at all times. And one of the reasons why she would keep a pistol was because slaves would often get cold feet on the way through the journey, and they would reason and delude themselves into thinking that slavery back home was better than the difficulties in the road ahead or the risk of being found. And Harriet would point her pistol at them to remind them of what awaited them back home, that the shackles of slavery were no better than a bullet at the head. And as a result, she led many to the north through the Underground Railroad, and she did not lose a single passenger. Why does the author of Hebrews point the eternal flames of hell in our face to remind us the consequences of falling back? Don't be like the Israelites, tempted to go back to Egypt in slavery. Don't be like Lot's wife who looked back at calamity and turned into a pillar of salt. Keep your eyes ahead. The author then turns from the terrors of falling away to remind us of how far we've come, of how far we've come. That's point number three, confidence. Confidence. Read with me from verses 32 to 35. remember the earlier days, when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners And accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The author wants us to remember the trials we've experienced as coming to know Jesus. Some of us in this room have experienced hard sufferings. Taunts, afflictions, even imprisonment. And we simultaneously endure these struggles and accept with joy the confiscating of our possessions. And the question is how do you do that? How can you lose everything you have with joy? How can you endure a hard struggle with suffering? Not by denying the difficulty of what's happening, but remembering the hardship. by, by remembering your confidence in the reward that is coming. That, that when you endure difficult trials... Great sufferings, taunts, confiscations of your possessions, and you continue to hang on, that shows the confidence that you have in the reward to come. If you want to display the life of Christ to those around you, according to 2 Corinthians 4, it's not by being awesome. It's not by doing excellent things. But by when the world batters you to the ground, And you're still there. That your experience of the death of Christ displays the life of Christ to those around you. And that endurance, that joy, that confidence that you can take everything that I have, but Jesus will come. That that you can taunt me, you can give me sufferings, you can pummel me to the dirt, and I will praise him still. That shows the value of what you believe in. So don't take that confidence and throw it away. Keep going. Because when you keep your eyes on that prize, you will receive the reward to come. Verse 36. For you need endurance. So that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Why do we need endurance? Because we need to do God's will in order to receive what was promised. What what verses 37 through 39 do is almost summarize the entirety of this chapter. That Jesus has done everything and he will come back. That's a guarantee. You can cash that check knowing that it won't bounce. And that he will come and he will not delay. Jesus will come and he will not come a second too soon. Or a second too late. His timing is perfect. And what do we do in response to that? We live by faith. That's what we do. We live by faith, not by sight. We draw near to Christ. We hold on to the confession of our hope. We consider one another and encourage each other, trusting that everything that we do will be worth it. Because we're not those who draw back and are destroyed. We're not those who doubt God's promises and end up falling away. We press forward with faith and we will be saved. So many of you here this morning are pressing forward, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. Keep pressing. Look at the prize ahead. And look at Christ who's gone before you. Jesus went to the depths of the grave and emerged victorious. And if we press forward in faith together, we'll join him. Let us arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace us in his arms. Because in the arms of our dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Let's pray. we thank you for your word this morning. I pray, God, by the power of the Spirit, that we would heed your warning to us, that we would take sin seriously, that we would look and treasure Christ ahead of us, and that you would give us the strength to obey your word here, to draw near to you, to hold on to the confession of our hope, and to care for one another. We can only do this by your strength. Pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.